passage um, from Gwendolyn Brooks's novel, Maud Martha. She uh, is a Pulitzer Prize winning poet, novelist. She wrote, go home to your children, she urged, to your wife or husband. She opened the trap, the mouse vanished. Suddenly she was conscious of a new cleanliness in her, a, a new cleanness in her. A wide air walked in her. A life had blundered its way into her power and it had been hers to preserve or destroy. She had not destroyed. In the center of that simple restraint was creation. She had created a piece of life. It was wonderful. Why, she thought, as her height doubled, why I'm good, I am good. She ironed her aprons, her back was straight, her eyes were mild and soft with a godlike loving kindness. So I have a question for all of us. This experience of this person in this story, would we call that wisdom? Would we call that love? It's just interesting how we, and I think also in this tradition, we tend to separate the two. But if you look at moments in your life where you were really skillful, really brave, courageous, would you call that love or wisdom? And it might be more about um, depending on what angle that you're looking at, at that experience, how you're framing it, how you're holding it. So tonight I want to talk about this intersection between wisdom and love. And our, you know, in the way we talk about it in the Buddhist tradition, there are some real differences. We think of wisdom as that force in the mind that we're developing that is able to deconstruct or to see beyond the superficial presentation, appearance of the experience and see that it's changing, see that it isn't worthy of attachment, see that it's nature, not self, it's coming and going due to causes and conditions. And often we think of experienced love as a force in the mind that can include that understands that this too belongs. May not be something I like, right? Love isn't, doesn't mean we like something. It means we are willing to include it. We're willing to be close. But our experience, our subjective experience of there being a lot of wisdom showing up in the mind or a lot of love showing up in the mind our subjective experience is that the mind is liberated, is free from the oppressive forces of greed, anger, and delusion for a moment or for moments, right? And this can be just a, a little experiment for you in the remaining days of the retreat when you experience being relatively free, the mind not oppressed by greediness or fear aversion. Notice how this can be experienced as the presence of love and it can be experienced as the presence of wisdom, wisdom of non-attachment, a love that isn't creating boundaries, that's holding it all, opening to it all. I remember uh, reading recently in Sylvia Borstein's book, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. She's a, besides being a wonderful Dharma teacher, she writes very well and has written a number of wonderful books, including that one, which is on the 10 paramis, these beautiful qualities of the heart, including loving kindness as one of them. And uh, I think in the chapter that's on equanimity, she writes, everything is always breathtakingly the only way that it can be.
my heart resting in equanimity can respond with compassion. And it's a nice, simple expression of love and wisdom working together or what we, I think we'd call being skillful. And this is the, uh, the basic dynamic of our practice. And it, it's really important to understand because it, uh, it corrects, I think, a very natural shadow that can creep in in Buddhist practice. Because so much emphasis, especially early on in practice, is in training the mind to see and experience, to see our life as it's showing up as experience, as just this being known. How many times have you heard the four of us say something like that on the retreat? Oh, it's just this being known. It's just this being known. So in a way, there's an emptying out process generally in our practice, we're only abandoning, only setting in motion the supporting causes for greed and fear and aversion and delusion to be abandoned. But that's not the end of the practice. That's just the sort of first step. And then that abandoning of greed, anger, and delusion allows for the next step, which is to see more clearly, depending on the context, like what's happening in that moment, see more clearly, understand more deeply, and then to respond appropriately. Precisely because the wisdom supported the letting go, the non-attachment, the non-confusion of the greed, anger, and delusion in our mind, in our heart. There's a very famous passage, a statement from one of the Chan masters. Chan is the equivalent of Zen. It was in China called Chan and then eventually made its way to Japan and Korea. This lineage, one lineage in the Buddhist tradition. And one of the Chan masters was asked, you know, what did the Buddha teach all life long or something like that? And he had this brilliant response. He said, an appropriate response. That's what the Buddha taught, you know, these 40 volumes or whatever of the Pali Canon of the different discourses. But it was all about responding appropriately in the moment. But when our mind is colored by greed, anger, and delusion, then like I mentioned the first, first day, we always do what we've always done. We always get what we, we've always gotten. And so the, the shadow sometimes that can creep in when there's, uh, when there's not a real balance between the understanding of wisdom and the understanding of love, an overemphasis on the wisdom that it's just nature, it's just something being known, is this attachment to emptiness. And one of the great saints in the in Buddhism, several centuries after the time of the Buddha, was somebody named Nargajuna. Maybe you've heard of him. And uh, he, he had many things to say, but one of his more pithy lines was, those who believe in emptiness are incurable. <laughs> <laughs> and this point was made a little bit more clear by uh, um, another famous Buddhist practitioner and teacher who was responsible in part, one of the people to bringing Buddhism up into Tibet many hundreds of years after the time of the Buddha. And Padma Sambhava was this person's name. And he said, although my vision, my understanding is as vast as the sky. So a real sense, that statement, a real sense of the empty nature of everything. And then he, he goes on, although it's my understanding is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma, to this relative world of cause and effect is as fine as a grain of barley flour, which is pretty fine. So if you can even imagine what one grain of barley flour, like to take that much responsibility 
for what's unfolding in our lives, in our society, in the world around us. And that's really what the path is all about. There's another well-known story that gets told a lot about, and I've heard the story told in different ways, but the way I like to tell the story is so somebody has been a seeker for almost ever, going to different monasteries, practicing in different places with different teachers, never really getting, you know, the understanding, the peace, what uh, this person was looking for. So, but eventually someone mentioned this very wise person who lives far away on the proverbial mountainside. So he went in search of this person, looking, looking, looking for a long, long time. And then one day, this older woman was walking down the mountain path with a bunch of branches, sticks that she was going to sell, sell in the local town to make some money. And he asked her, like, do you, do you know about this famous master who lives up somewhere in these parts? And they had a short conversation and it was pretty clear that after a few moments that she was the, the master. So like a good student, you know, he asked for some teachings and she just suddenly released this huge bundle of branches on her back, you know, crashes to the ground. I mean, it's tied together, but it just sort of fell and he got it, you know, like, let go, don't be attached, you know, and they had this moment, teacher-student moment together, like where they teacher knew that the student got it and student being very appreciative and and then the student said, so what's next? <laughs> and the old woman picked up the big bundle of branches, put it on her back and walked into town. So, so this is the very interesting dynamic that we, we find ourselves especially when we're practicing out in the world. On retreat, it can feel a little different, except when we understand we actually haven't left the world behind. Anybody have this realization? Right? It's all here. <laughs> all the greed, anger, and delusion. And, and the kind of, even current events, our own minds sort of, generation, generating of current events, it's probably not that different than the news, the current news out in the world, right? Like whatever we're regurgitating on our own. The whole world is moving inside of us. So this is our dynamic. The, the wisdom, for wisdom to develop we need this swirling world of greed, anger, and delusion because it's precisely this, the work of love and wisdom to, we use this fertile ground of greed, anger, and delusion, right? Love uses it to realize I can include this too. I can show up with love, with compassion, brokenhearted tenderness, I can show up with joy for what's beautiful and equanimity for what's confusing. And wisdom needs that swirling world of greed, anger, and delusion to realize that it's changing, not worthy of grasping, that it's impersonal. So any thought that uh, we somehow, because it's such an idyllic place, especially with the clearing that we have tonight and just the humidity and fertileness of the spring, the humidity of the air, we feel sort of in a different place. Our lives maybe feel distant, but hopefully it is a little bit safer here. That's the whole point of creating the container that we've created and all the work that the staff at IMS have done over the years to do our best to create some safety here so that we can still, the world's swirling, but mostly just inside our own hearts and bodies and minds, right? But because it's a little bit more tame, we can practice 
both of those Dharma moves, the, the love move, which is saying, yes, you belong. I see you, I feel you, and you belong here. I'm not afraid of you. And wisdom, that's understanding it's just something being known. And it's always something being known, one thing after another. No real ground there. It's always becoming something else. One moment conditioning the next, changing according to causes, impersonal causes and conditions. And some of us will emphasize the love move more than the wisdom move, but we need both, right? Because understanding the love move really supports, even if you primarily use the wisdom move, it softens the wisdom move, right? It keeps it from being uh, aversive or indifferent. It supports the wisdom, the practice of seeing things as they are. It really supports being close. And love needs the wisdom. Love without wisdom gets sentimental and idealistic. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. He says, metta, loving kindness, is not an idealistic state of mind. It does not mean, it, metta does not necessarily mean liking anything at all. It means an attitude of not dwelling on the unpleasantness or faults of any situation inside or outside oneself. Now with metta, one isn't blinding oneself with an ideal. Instead, one is witnessing the unpleasantness in a situation, thing, person, or in oneself without creating anything around it. Both wisdom and love understand this basic truth that ill will hurts, right? I forget who said that, but we all know that. We all could have said that. It's just a basic fact. Ill will hurts, whether it's in the form of impatience or hatred or boredom or self-righteousness, it hurts. And we have to own that. Like what love does is it has compassion. Oh yeah, honey, there we go again, being angry, being upset. And the truth is it hurts. And the other truth is I care about that, right? That's what love does. And wisdom looks at it and understands ill will hurts. It's really unpleasant like this. It's this unpleasantness being known and this mental content, you know, whatever thoughts, thoughts are being known. These thoughts, this feeling, they come and go conditionally, always on the move, always coming and going, always changing. If I relate this way, I feed it and it starts to hurt more. If I relate this other way, seeing it as nature and not self, it loosens up, it's not as oppressive. One thing that both wisdom and love does for us is it really grounds, it's sort of a, a humbling, both I think are humbling forces in different ways. I, one of the first people I really benefited from as a teacher, I never met this person, he was an Indian man, but I had several teachers who were students of this person named Swami Shivananda. He was a well-regarded uh, teacher in India, died in 1964. And uh, whenever he was asked a question like, what is the essence of spiritual life? He would always answer something like, humility. And uh, if someone were to ask, like, how do you know somebody's a, you know, worthwhile as a teacher that they know what they're talking about? He would say something like, well, are they humble? And there's, uh, there's something about both the love move and the wisdom move 
that is humbling in our practice. Sometimes people on retreat, you know, especially now, those of you right in the middle of the retreat, and not so much that we feel beaten down, but we feel tenderized just by the sitting and walking and the exposure to love and awareness, love and wisdom, right? Just that looking, that opening, that feeling into what's coming and going. And it, and it tends to wear down pretense and self-importance, right? It's just so painful, any pretense, <laughs> self-importance, any fixed idea, slowly, if we're doing the practice, becomes almost intolerably oppressive. You know, have you noticed like when your mind starts to spin in some sort of self-righteous, the heart, everything just gets really painful. This is hard to bear, but it's such a powerful, important force in our practice, this being tenderized. And the thing is, it's not so much that the, like what the mind is spinning about, that it's somehow wrong or that we have the wrong facts or something like that. It's really the, the self-importance, the pretense, it's the squeeze itself, the attachment itself, the separation itself that is just uh, incompatible with love and wisdom. Love and wisdom just won't put up with that fixedness. Early on in my practice years, I did a number of Zen sashins, including several with a well-known teacher who would come out to Minnesota and teach uh, once a year, Reb Anderson, who was one of the abbots, early abbots of the San Francisco Zen Center, and now is, I think, called a senior teacher at the Green Gulch, which is owned by the San Francisco Zen Center north of San Francisco. And I remember he, I don't know if he said this in a talk or I read this in one of his books, but he said that the difference between an ordinary person and somebody who has practiced well, that's sort of an interesting question, and he answers it. He says, an ordinary person feels vulnerable some of the time, and someone who is practicing well feels vulnerability all of the time. (laughs) But it's a real sign of, it's a real strength in practice, right? Because we're more in line. That, that's the humility, that vulnerability. The view, the understanding, the way of being is more in line with the way it is. That tender-heartedness or the lack of ground. Even common experiences of like forgetting why we're here. What am I doing here? And, and really tolerating the confusion, like, because we know. Like wisdom or love says, oh honey, it's okay. It's okay to not know why you're here or what you're doing or which way is up or am I a good yogi or a bad yogi? <laughs> it's like, it's okay not to know. And wisdom says, that's just a thought. <laughs> it's just a thought and if there's a charge, It's just a charge that feels like this now, right? And it comes and it goes and something will soon replace it and then it will be like that. This will be known. So this is a place we can keep coming back, this place of wisdom and love that knows it's not easy being a human being. I mean, just on the level of having a body, isn't that clear? It's not easy having a body, a physical body And even if you're experiencing the body in a more energetic level, even that can be problematic, let alone when we're experiencing the density of the body and the aches and pains. It's not easy having a conditioned mind. Think about how these emotional thinking patterns got established. You know, when I think about, I mean, I, my parents are both gone but they were basically good folks. Um, But, you know, when I think about their conditioning, growing up on farms, one in Montana, the other in North Dakota, 
during the late 20s and 30s. And, uh, you know, that particular environment and then especially growing up in the Dust Bowl and the kind of person, the kind of mind, and then my mind being conditioned by them and by watching Leave It to Beaver and My Three Sons and all of those kind of programs and how like the cultural imprint that comes from that, you know, how much ignorance and, uh, yeah, and real suffering is embedded in the kind of cultural conditioning that I received, that all of us in our own particular ways received. And so it's not easy having a conditioned mind, a mind that's been conditioned by culture, by our families, It's not easy seeing what we see. And again, you know, how wisdom really allows us to meet the experience of having a mind and body that are in motion and all their glory, expressing themselves according to their causes and conditions, can't be stopped. It's so humiliating at times to have a body, to have pain that we can't, or even digestion that we, you know, can't seem to come into, bring it into balance. I'm eating too much, I'm eating the wrong kinds of foods, or can't figure out what to do with my knee. I sit in a chair, it doesn't feel good. I sit on the floor, it doesn't feel good. I walk, it doesn't feel good. But this is precisely the ground that we bring wisdom and love over and over again, and something happens. You know, we keep seeing, you know, the wisdom move. Oh, the mind just thought that thought, right? Like some of the thoughts that the mind thinks. It's amazing. But now, in the context of our retreat, we're not afraid to honestly acknowledge, oh yeah, the mind just thought that thought. That was just a thought that went through the mind, right? Of course, it's like, we really have that understanding. Of course, sometimes it's like that. Sometimes there's a mind that thinks a thought like that. How do I know that? Because my mind just thought that thought. (laughs) So it happens. And it's really clear how impersonal it is because I would never think that thought. (laughs) (laughs) This is really the, the great benefit of, and if you don't, developing good Dharma friends because you can tell them exactly how it is and you can't shock a good Dharma friend, right? Because they've seen it too. I mean, their own version of it, you know, being really petty or being really lustful or being really stupid, you know, disconnected, thinking something is true when it's not true. But we're so convinced until we finally, it dawns in the mind, oh my God, I had it completely wrong. And I was so sure that this person was wrong, you know. There's a funny, I was just teaching a retreat in Minnesota a week or so before this retreat. And uh, a really uh, wonderful man, our treasurer, was going through the food line. And he took the last slice of cheese and he put his plate down on the table because I think maybe he was making some toast, which was the toaster was right behind him. Then another person who was actually staff on the retreat was going through the line and he saw the plate sitting there and he took the person's cheese because he thought it was the platter. <laughs> and you know, he's getting his salad and stuff and, uh, and then the treasurer just looks at him. I don't, I don't know if he did the sort of a little hands together or, or what. And somehow he signaled that he would like. <laughs> but the other person just thought he was just asking if he could share the cheese. So. Being a good yogi, he, he broke it in half <laughs> and he gave him half. And it wasn't until he was sitting down that it dawned on him that that wasn't the cheese platter, that was his plate. <laughs> and there are lots of stories like this. I don't know who it was, one of the IMS teachers, I, I think they knew this person that this happened to where uh, she was sitting down in the airport lounge, you know, just waiting to get at the gate, waiting to get on a flight. And she had purchased some candy and 
And um, uh, she noticed, it was just sitting there next to her, she noticed the guy next to her taking some candy. Do you know who told the story, Kamal? It was written and oh. Mira told it. Mira Young? Yeah, she told it, but it was written in some uh, article. Oh, okay. <laughs> so anyway, the person started eating some of her candy and she was a little taken aback. That's just, you know, strange. And so she kept eating it too and maybe it would have been a little faster. To <laughs> and then it really threw her for a loop when there was one piece left and the guy took the bag and offered her the last piece and he, she thought that was so kind of outrageous of him. <laughs> you probably see where this story is going. So by the time she gets on the plane, getting th- going through her stuff and she sees her bag of candy unopened in her purse. That was his bag of candy. <laughs> that she was eating out of. So sometimes this happens on retreat. And we really see this about the mind, the kind of stories, the, del- the delusion that we can get in. Um, you know, even just obsessing about something. I remember on a long retreat, obsessing about my wife having an affair. I mean, just, I think I was just bored. <laughs> And this is like in the middle of a three-month retreat. It's like <laughs> the mind can do strange things. And then to, to sort of realize that my mind had indulged in that based on absolutely nothing except being bored or, you know, just in need of a fix, right? We're addicted to intensity. And when there isn't intensity, well, the mind creates it. So when we start to see the nature of the conditioned mind, how it's doing its own thing and we're not in control of it. It takes a lot of love and a lot of wisdom to kind of stay in the game, you know, to keep showing up. Of course, it's like this now. This is a beautiful poem by Mark Nepo. Yes, it is true, I confess. I have thought great thoughts and sung great songs, all of it rehearsal for the majesty of being held. The dream is awakened when thinking I love you and life begins when saying, I love you, and joy moves like blood when embracing others we love. My efforts now turn from trying to outrun suffering to accepting love wherever I can find it. Stripped of causes and plans and things to strive for, I have discovered everything I could need or ask for is right here in flawed abundance. We cannot eliminate hunger, but we can feed each other. We cannot eliminate loneliness, but we can hold each other. We cannot eliminate pain, but we can live a life of compassion. Ultimately, we are small living things awakened in the stream, not gods who carve out rivers. Like human fish, we are asked to experience meaning in the life that moves through the gill of our heart. There is nothing to do and nowhere to go. Accepting this, we can do everything and go anywhere. So I thought about some of the shared qualities of love and wisdom that I'd like to take the remaining time to reflect on. One thing about love and wisdom is this um, quality, this generous quality of including, knowing how to include, right? I remember one of my first interviews uh, in my first three-month retreat, my teacher here at IMS said something, and you know, I, I had probably had heard it before, but it really hit home. It was so liberating just to hear it and and maybe have a little 
intuition of its truth. And this teacher said, mindfulness doesn't care what's being known. In the same way, probably, love doesn't care. Love is, I mean, when we do formal loving kindness practice, often people will bring a person to mind, an easy person to mind, or maybe themselves to mind to begin the practice. But when, the, when there's real love moving, natural love moving, anybody will do. It, it can even be an inanimate object, right? The, the quality of appreciation, the quality of warmth, the quality of the absence of ill will, the absence of any division, any object will do, any experience will do. So this is something to be on the lookout for. You know, we tend in practice for good reasons to initially get pretty good at and pretty fluent at recognizing difficult experience. But it's just as important to get as fluent to be able to recognize the qualities of wisdom and love as they're moving, as they're arising in the mind, expressing themselves in the mind and heart because it's really empowering, it's energizing when we recognize, oh, that's calm, that's gratitude, that's friendliness, that's real. You know, in the same way that calm can be real in a moment, or clarity, or energy, or curiosity, you know, these wholesome qualities of the mind. One of the early statements in Sharon Salzberg's wonderful book on loving kindness, you know, I probably have gone through it a half a dozen times because I've just, sometimes people are born to write something and I think Sharon was here in part to write that book. And it's really affected so much of not just the insight meditation community here in the West, but just the culture generally is valuing loving kindness. And one of her opening sentences, a few pages into the book is, gratefulness of being, which we experience as happiness, can also be described as love, to be undivided and unfragmented, to be completely present is to love to pay attention is to love. And that has such a generous feel to it. I'm sure you can sense that, that somehow everything belongs, that the wisdom and love, these two, two tools of the Dharma, you know, they're really here so that we can meet, we can be intimate with our experience. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, a wonderful Western Buddhist monk. He writes, Metta includes the totality of our world and experience. It includes every possibility, the born and the unborn, the created and the uncreated, those who are present and those who are absent. With Metta, we contemplate all phenomena, all sentient beings in terms of loving kindness and inclusiveness, rather than the end the divisive terms of which is best, which is worse, what we like, what we don't like. Metta then is the way we relate to the totality. And then a little later he writes, in this way we develop a sense of well-being, recognizing that everything belongs in the totality, that there is nothing we can think of or imagine, nothing that has ever happened to us that doesn't belong. Now that's obviously provocative, right? That everything belongs. But you see how it, it really keeps us in the practice because otherwise those conditioned habits to disconnect, to wish it isn't the way that it is, to get lost in distraction, somehow think that aversion is functional, that will help, 
or wanting things to be different than they are will help? I mean, it doesn't mean that if things actually were to change in a way that it was more pleasant, that probably would help. But wanting or needing things to change, that doesn't help, right? That just makes the body and the mind tight, heavy. So this is something we can reflect on how wisdom and love, they know how to include. And another aspect of wisdom and love is it's, it's not aggressive. It's something about wisdom and love that's gentle. Remember I read the passage on uh, the first night from the Tao Te Ching about how water, you know, just the, this quality of yielding, receptivity, gentleness. But that doesn't, it's not the same as being weak, which we can sometimes mistake awareness and wisdom and mistake love as sort of being the doormat or being passive. And this is really important to understand this. Uh, I mean, this is the, the next point I want to make. I mean, on the one hand, love and wisdom have this yielding, gentle, uh, non-aggressive quality. And precisely because of that, wisdom and love have a real, can, when there's some momentum, have a real stability, a real power. And that's, uh, that's important that we see both sides of that so that we, this is one, another one of those shadows of, or related to that shadow I was talking about before, where somehow we think that the way to deal with having a mind and body and living in a world that is the expression, right? The world is just the manifestation of what's moving on inside of us, just collectively, right? So the injustice, the meanness, the denial, the confusion, the greed and aversion, the war, the violence, all of that is just this expression of what's moving inside of us. And it, that hardness and meanness of the world, it seems to demand, right, a meanness. Like, oh, that, I have to meet it. I have to up my game, up my energy. I'm going into town. I'm going to do this meeting. And we think that the only power we have is to sort of meet aversion with aversion or hate with hate or greed with greed. Because if I don't match their greed, their greed's going to overtake my greed and I'll be left holding nothing. So I need to have even more greed and be more strategic. And then we get a world like this. So we need to understand that our refuge, wisdom and love, this practice, this path, is really about uncovering something that's non-aggressive, that knows how to yield. Because what we're really counting on is the deepening of understanding. And we can't deepen understanding at the same time we're struggling with experience, struggling with the world. So we need this move that yields because then we understand better. And then with a deepening, a, a deeper understanding, then the other move is to respond, right? The appropriate response is to speak up, to say, to do. Even on retreat, we do that, right? It's like something comes up, we don't really understand what it is. We remember though, it's just this being known and we yield, we let it express itself in the body and mind. We give it permission to be what it is. Because not even that we even trust that so much, but we're exhausted trying to control it or get rid of it or pretend it's not there. So we let it be what it is. And because of that yielding, we understand it a little bit better. We understand how to be skillful with it, how to not be confused by it, how to include it. That's what love does. It includes it. Yeah, sometimes it's like this. I can say yes to this too. And lo and behold, 
it's a little lighter, a little freer in the body and mind. So there are these two parts of uh, really getting the yielding, soft, gentle, non-aggressive, and really then understanding the power that then can flow out of that. One of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther King is he really speaks to this. And he's such a good example of this, um, of the power of love. I mean, just it's hard for me to imagine uh, the, I mean, not just the personal danger, but just caring about other people that were put put in danger because of the nonviolent movement that he led. So he wrote about power and love. He said, Power is the ability to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, and economic changes. In this sense, power is not only desirable, but necessary in order to implement the demands of love and justice. One of the greatest problems of history is that the concepts of love and power are usually contrasted as polar opposites. Love is identified with resignation of power, and power with the denial of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love, implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is love, correcting everything that stands against love. So the yielding quality, right, that understands that, that statement from Sylvia Borstein, that everything is breathtakingly the only way that it can be. And because this moment is already this way, then the wisdom and love expresses itself as a yielding. Because this moment, the feeling in the heart, the content in the mind, the sensations in the body, the world, circumstance swirling around us, it's already this way. And we don't have to like it, but we need to yield. But that yielding isn't the only part of our practice. It's just, it's sort of like two sides of freedom. One is really getting, it's like this now. This is being known. Is there a heart here that can include this, that can meet this with love? And then it's precisely because of that radical intimacy that this power of response comes. Even in the quiet of a sit, there's some you know, you could call it an assertive move where the mind understands, right? It's like there's a powerful shift in one's understanding, sometimes seismic movements in our understanding, sometimes just a gradual. But certainly out in the world, you know, the understanding, the clarity that comes our way every once in a while really leads, can lead to bold, beautiful action where we hear ourselves saying the right thing at the right time, or we see ourselves restraining, refraining from doing something that we would have otherwise done that would have been, you know, not skillful. But the clarity that was there, like, honey, don't do that. Don't do that. And in this way, you know, this understanding how to yield and how to respond, how to show up fearlessly. It's like uh, the Buddha was asked this question once by a general, you know, something like, it wasn't really even a question, it was more of a put down where he was 
saying that the Buddha was teaching passivity. And the Buddha's response was really simple. He said, well, I teach passivity. Uh, this is a, not a great paraphrase. I teach passivity when the motivation is unwholesome. And I teach action in terms of thought, word, and deed when the motivation, when the intention is wholesome. When, one, when we're motivated by greed, anger, and delusion, yeah, not acting on that is skillful. When the motivation is compassion and love and renunciation, generosity, then why would one restrain themselves from expressing that intention in the world? We wouldn't. It would be allowed to move. And in this way, you know, the Dharma is really it's, it's not optimistic or pessimistic. It's, as Saito Utejaniya said, it's realistic. It really understands this is how it is. And we don't really know how to respond, how to show up, unless we really let it in. And then you see, it's not even me figuring out what should I say to this person? What should I do in this situation? It's really more about what we're doing here on retreat, really learning how to let it in. And then we're doing the supporting causes for the appropriate response. It just emerges out of the heart when we can let it in, when we can meet our experience without fear and greed and anger. And then even when there is greed or anger or fear, then we meet that, we yield, oh yeah, that's like that. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. He's talking about one of the real fruits of practice. He says, when we have metta for ourselves, loving kindness for ourselves, we start by listening to what we really think of ourselves. No editing. Don't be frightened. Be courageous and listen to the unpleasant thoughts or fears that go through your mind. And then a little later he writes, I reckon that the ability to sit with the rubbish is a sign of an advanced student. It takes a long time for people to just let the rubbish come up like that. And it's true not just with the rubbish, but also with the beautiful moments, the moments of real peace, moments of real gratitude and appreciation, moments of stillness and clarity, to really allow you know, to yield to those and not be confused by it, like not feeling worthy or feeling like I need, I'll never get this again, so I better grab it and hold tight. And, and love and wisdom understands, you know, that no, that's also a kind of violence. I bet many of us in this room, when we touched, when the mind just naturally touched into places that are relatively peaceful and beautiful, right? We saw that aggressive move to want it, to want to own it, to want to hold it, to get excited. And you know how it is. It breaks our heart to say, oh, that didn't help, <laughs> right? The grasping, you know, it's what, what uh, it's one of the causes for the mind getting agitated for whatever peaceful, clear state that has naturally arisen to fall away because greed, wanting, isn't the cause for peace. It's the cause for tension. The last point I wanna make about wisdom and love is this. Um, yeah, it's, it's like uh, more about what's not there than what's there. And I think this is a really skillful thing to understand 
And instead of trying to be wise or trying to be loving, it's really the mind, like love is the mind free of ill will. Sometimes when we do a formal loving kindness practice, we um, tune into that expansive, that generous, expansive quality. And one way to sense that quality of love that goes everywhere, it's just not being fragmented by ill will. There's no, in those moments, no ill will in the mind limiting the expanse of the heart. So the heart goes out everywhere. It includes everything because it's ill will that creates that me and you, like and dislike, you know, ill will and greed. So to think about love as the absence of ill will, it's the space of the present moment the space of the mind when there's, when it's free of ill will, right? And then wisdom is the space of the mind when it's not colored by craving or attachment. And even relatively little ill will, relatively little attachment, right? We know, we, we see like when there's a lot of attachment, a lot of ill will, That's not love, that's not wisdom. When there's less ill will, less boredom, impatience, irritation, less attachment, less less, uh, activity in the mind struggling to make things other than what they are, and there's peace, there's love. And I think it's useful when you have states that feel peaceful and calm, to notice it, to understand it as a quality of love. Like notice the inclusiveness, notice the absence of ill will. See it as something beautiful, the peace, the calm, the relative lack of attachment and struggle. And when you see a lot of the love being really strong, the quality of the heart, including and caring and wishing well, that expansive, then notice the absence of struggle, right? That's the pleasantness of a mind strong with loving kindness. It's pleasant because the mind's not struggling. It's not trying to make things different than they are. It's just allowing things to come and go. It trusts the conditional unfolding. It doesn't neurotically feel like it has to do something. I'll just end maybe by reading a little bit more from Ajahn Sumedho here. Actually, I think what I'll do is read the last three stanzas from the Metta Sutta, the Discourse on Loving Kindness. And this is translated by Andy Olensky. Um, We don't see this translation as often as some of the other translators, but I really like how he translated the last three stanzas. You might have heard this discourse. It's quite well-known, and sometimes we've enchanted here at the center at the uh, end of the night. Develop a mind of loving kindness, unbounded toward the entire world, above and below and all the way round, with no holding back, no loathing, no foe. Standing, walking, sitting or lying down, as long as one is devoid of torpor, sleepiness, one would resolve upon this mindfulness. This is known as sublime abiding here. Without falling into mistaken views, endowed with insight and integrity, guiding away greed for central things, one would not be born again into a womb or not born again into cycles of suffering. So let's just sit for a few moments, let go of the words.
for listening. So we have time for walking practice now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.